When I was a student pastor, a youth pastor, I had a lot of opportunities to speak at youth camps and youth events and youth retreats. Uh, I always used it, I loved doing it and loved having that opportunity. And uh, I always found when I was speaking to students or speaking to young people, one of the best ways to kind of break the ice was to shake things up. And so I would start uh, my message or my speech or my teaching by reminding them how wonderful it was to be at youth camp. That camp is a wonderful place to kind of get away or a retreat weekend. It's a great way to get out of your normal routine and to go and escape and be alone with God and just kind of kind of focus your heart during that time period on what God has for you. But I also reminded them that that time that they were away was also more of a staycation for their parents who were having an empty house without having teenagers there. That it was a celebration that probably while those students were at camp, while those students were at retreat, their parents were having a wonderful time back at home. Probably having a couple of romantic nights. Maybe even having a little time of sweet love while they're children are gone. Now, if you want to gross out kids, if you want to gross out anybody, talk about their parents having sex. And uh, and especially if you call it sweet love, you'll determine that anytime you say sweet love, if you don't believe me, you can try it out. Those of you that are older and have older kids, next time your child or your adult child calls you and says, what are you doing? Just say, your mom and I were having sweet love. And they'll, they'll never ask you again what you were doing. I promise you. Um, and so they would laugh and they would go, say gross and say ah and all of those kind of responses that you would expect and then I would really try to dig it down and then I would really try to dive down I'd say you know probably to be more honest that your students your parents are probably trying to to break the ice a little more they're probably trying to do it a little adventurous and be different matter of fact right now they're probably in your bedroom doing that sweet love. Now you can imagine that if the first comment, some of you are looking at me like a prude. Listen, it's sex. God created it. We need to get lightened up about what the Bible says about sex. That's the problem in church. Part of our problem is we're afraid to discuss topics, and so we've never discussed them, and we never talk about them. And because we don't talk about them, we let the world decide for our children and our adults and even for our own lives what's right and wrong. We've, we've abdicated that responsibility because we thought that topic or, or that, we shouldn't talk about that. We've got to talk about it. Matter of fact, the New Testament, especially in Paul's teaching, talks about it almost to exclusive of everything else. And so I'd say something about their parents having sex in their bedroom and they would get upset and they would yell and they would scream and I'd wait until everything died down and I would say, you know, the sad thing about our culture is that we have allowed the world around us to so distort our view of sex that teenagers can know about kids and friends that are having sex in the back of a car. They can know about their friends that are having sex all around them. They can even be participating in sex, and they don't bat an eye. But yet when you talk about a married couple having sex, which is exactly the way God created it, it bothers them. It disgusts them. We don't even like to talk about it. That's why we don't talk about it. Because we've allowed the world to distort our view of sex. And it's not just children. It's not just teenagers. It's all of us. So many of us in the church have become so desensitized to what the Bible calls sexually immoral behavior that we just nowadays call it normal. We just nowadays accept it. We are bombarded by it. We are overwhelmed by it. We are bombarded by it on television and the movies and on social media and on everything that we listen to. We're surrounded by it in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our homes and in our communities. 
So much so that what used to be considered just 20 years ago, behavior that was outside of the social norms, much less outside of biblical norms, is now not only accepted, it's celebrated. 20 years ago, if a, a husband was cheating on his wife, that was something that was, was addressed and dealt with. It was something that would shock people. Nowadays, it doesn't even catch a blink. 20 years ago, the thought of a man using a woman's bathroom or using a girl's shower would shock people. Today, now it's normal. Nowadays, college students, whether you know it or not, they brag to one another about their sex number, how many people they've had sex with, and they compete to see how many has the most partners. What that should do is it should open our eyes to understand that we have abdicated a responsibility that is the church's. And our children and our communities and our neighborhoods and our churches are paying the price. Our view of sexual boundaries and sexual behavior is so out of whack that I promise you there are some people in this room that just by me bringing this up, just by me talking about it, are automatically going to go to a default that says that's old-fashioned. That's just, you know, you've got to say that. You're the preacher. That's what preachers say. So, so that, you know, this doesn't, it's not relevant anymore in 2019. But I want you to listen to me, every person in this room, because I believe this topic touches every person. Today's passage, the passage we're going to read in just a moment, has the power to change your life. It can protect you from disappointment and pain and struggle. It can set you free from your past. It can save your relationship. It can even save a marriage if you'll let the Holy Spirit speak to you this morning. Now, I debated how I was going to approach this topic because I've taught on this so many times. And I debated, how do I need to approach this? And I thought, about maybe I could come with statistics and overwhelm you with statistics. But that's part of the problem because, you see, sex is not about head knowledge. And statistics are head knowledge. I'm not here today to try to convince you of any one view or any one opinion. Because if I can convince you, then someone else can convince you not to. And most of us grew up where all we heard about sex was just say no. No one ever talked about why it was important to say no. No one ever talked about why, what happened if you said yes and what the consequences of saying yes. And we tried to convince our young people and we tried to convince our teenagers that you've just got to say no. But you see, sex is so much greater than a head issue. Sex is a heart issue. It's an intimate issue. It's an emotional issue. And so if God is going to change your mind, He is not going to start in your head. He is going to start in your heart. Because it's your heart and it's your soul that is affected when we're disobedient. Now, I've heard over and over again the old excuse, especially from teenagers and young people and college students, that God created these rules because He just didn't want us to have fun. It's one of the greatest lies from the enemy. Matter of fact, what we're going to read in just a moment teaches us just the opposite. You see, because God loves you and God created you and He created sex... You understand that? God created sex to be in all of its glory. And if He created you and He loves you and He created sex, then who better to know the consequences of sex? Who better to know how it will affect you emotionally? Who better to know how how it will affect your spirit? Because God's not concerned with what everybody else is doing. God's not concerned with what's popular. God's not concerned with what the majority says. God loves you and He's concerned about you. 
And it doesn't matter if you're 14 or 60. He's concerned about your relationships. He's concerned about your marriage. And he's concerned about your thought life. He's concerned about you dedicating yourself to his heart. So this morning, my prayer is that you'll listen with your heart. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 12. Now, while you're turning there, let me remind you of what's going on in Corinth that made Paul write this. You remember from our introduction several weeks ago, or many weeks ago, that Corinth was probably the most immoral city in the Roman world. Probably the most immoral city in the Greek world. Matter of fact, Corinth was so bad that if someone you knew was living a deviant lifestyle, if someone you knew was a drunkard, if someone you knew was cheating on their spouse, they were known as a Corinthian. They had their own term. That if they were so bad that they equated bad behavior with being in Corinth. Corinth made Las Vegas look tame. It made it look like a children's park. Corinth was horribly corrupt. And the reason it was so corrupt is because at the back of where Corinth the town sits is the Acro Corinth, which I told you about. It's a, a, a mountain on top, and on top of the mountain, on top of the Acro Corinth, was the temple to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And in the temple of Aphrodite, there were over 2,000 temple priestess who every night would come down from the temple or go to different places throughout the city, and they would prostitute themselves to raise money for the temple. And so it was very common, listen, it was very common in Corinth for a man to go to work and when he left work to go find one of the temple prostitutes and to be with the prostitute, then to go home and eat his meal and be with his family. That became normal behavior. Part of the, the, the standard of your transition from childhood to adulthood is almost every Corinthian male lost their virginity when they were a teenager to one of these temple prostitutes. It just became the norm. It was so common that, that it, nobody even blinked an eye, even in the church. And it was in this environment that sex became just like every other activity. You see, sex to the Corinthians was just like eating. Sex to the Corinthians was just like going to work. Sex to the Corinthians was just like doing any other activity. It was just a behavior. It didn't have anything special and there was nothing special to it. It was just sex. And in Corinth, it was so bad that the Corinthians had developed these slogans that they would put all over the different places that they would quote to one another to justify and to rationalize why there's nothing wrong with having sex when you want it, with who you want it, whenever you want it. And so when Paul begins to address the Corinthians, he starts out with these little sayings. Because these sayings were not just in the town of Corinth, they were in the church at Corinth. These Corinthian Christians, just like the culture around them, had convinced themselves that it was just sex. That it was no big deal. And so Paul starts out by confronting them. And listen to what he says. Verse 12. He's going to confront two of the main sayings. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. That's one of the sayings. I can do anything I want. Everything is permissible. Everything is allowable. Doesn't that sound like something we'd hear today at a protest or a social meme? That everything, everything is for you. Do everything that you want. There's no problem with doing whatever you want. But Paul says, while everything may be allowed, is everything beneficial? While everything may be okay in your own mind, is it really beneficial for you? Is it helping you? The question for what he was trying to get the point is, is that is what you're doing, does it help or does it complicate? 
Does your behavior help your relationships or does it complicate your relationships? Just because you think you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it. Let me just stop for a minute and ask you, those of you that have been involved in sexual behavior outside of marriage, and I'm not limiting it to premarital sex. It could be postmarital sex. It could be someone that's been divorced and is single at the time or somebody that's not in a relationship. It can be extramarital, somebody that's, that's cheating on a spouse or outside. Let me ask you, when in the world has sex outside the bounds of marriage ever made a relationship better? Does it make it better or does it complicate it? It always complicates it. I used to ask my students this who were struggling in a sexual relationship. Let me ask you, does sex help or does it hurt? Now, they would try to act tough and say, oh, it helps. It makes the relationship better. They know the truth in their heart. It doesn't. Because what sex does outside of marriage is it escalates a relationship beyond where you are maturely ready to handle it. It always makes the relationship move much faster. It always escalates the relationship. It doesn't help. It complicates. Paul says just because you can do it, does that mean you should? And if you do it, is it beneficial? Does it really help you or does it make things worse? Then he deals with the second thing. For everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. He says, okay, everything, you can do everything, but let me ask you this. How many of those things that you do, how many of those behaviors that you act out on, really have more control over you than you have control over them. Because you see, what Paul was trying to get to is that sexual sin always controls you more than you control it. You may think you can stop. You may think you can walk away. You may think that it's no big deal. But it begins to consume you. You think, oh, it's just one time. But that's never just one time. That relationship becomes consumed with that behavior. You may think, I was just one look at the computer. I was just curious about that. And I just wanted to look at it and see what it was all about. But that one look is never enough. Before you know it, you're being drawn back to look again and back to look again. You say, oh, it was just one sweet word. Or I was just flirting with somebody at work that's not my spouse. And it's no big deal. But before time, if you don't stop that behavior, it begins to control you. It begins to consume your thoughts. It begins to lie to you in your spirit. Paul's saying, you think you can do everything that you want, but let me tell you something. Those things that you're doing, they control you much more than you control them. Then in verse 13, he says, food for the stomach or stomach for the food. You see, what they were saying was, sex is just like eating. Sex is just like having a meal. It's no big deal. So Paul says, but God will destroy them both. For the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. For by His power God raised us up from the dead, and He will also raise us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? So then I take a member of Christ, that's your body, and unite it with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, he goes all the way back to Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with spirit. See, the Corinthians were saying, listen, it's my body. I can do with it as I want. Does that sound familiar? Nobody can tell me what I can do with my body. And Paul says, are you crazy? Do you not remember that your body is not your own? Your body was purchased by the blood and the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because of that, it's not your body anymore. He now controls your body. And really, if you want to get into it, if you're a married person, we're going to find in chapter 7 that it's not just not your body, it's God's body, but it's also your spouse's body. 
they have control over you more than you have control. Because when you commit yourself to a marriage relationship, you let go of those things that are in your body to your spouse. You give that to them. Paul says, not only does God live in you, not only does He purchase you, but He is with you at all times. He said, don't you understand? It's not for you to decide anymore. God is always with you. And I think so many times we compartmentalize our Christianity that that we forget God's always with us. Let me ask you this. How comfortable would you be watching some of those things, listening to some of those things, looking at some of those things, doing some of the behavior that you do if I was with you? I used to ask students, imagine yourself the next time you and your girlfriend or boyfriend are going too far and and things are getting out of hand. I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring remembrance that I'm sitting in the car with you. They were like, gross. (laughs) Now, some of them come back and say, listen, me and my girlfriend, we were starting to go too far. And all of a sudden you were there. I was like, praise the Lord. (laughs) Listen, I'm just your pastor. I love you. There is a holy and righteous God that is there. No matter what you're doing, no matter what you're looking at, no matter what you're saying, no matter what you're watching, there is a righteous God that created you and loves you and and has a great purpose and plan for your life. And when you do those things, He is right there with you. We can't lose sight. Paul says, don't forget. Now listen, before I keep reading, let let me just give you... The underlying truth that Paul wants to make sure everybody understands. The underlying truth that is the key to this passage. And it's so very simple, but yet so hard for us to wrap our head around. That truth is that sex and sexual behavior is for married people only. I want you to listen. Sex and sexual behavior is for married people only. Not couples that are engaged, not consenting adults, not people who love each other, not people who think they're ready for it, not people who have been in a long-term relationship, not people who are promised to one another or have dated a long time or have been with each other for years, for married people only. Because you see, sex is like fire. Fire is great and it's wonderful as long as it is where it's supposed to be. But the moment that fire gets out of where it's supposed to be, the moment it leaves the fire pit, the moment it leaves the fireplace, it becomes incredibly destructive. It becomes dangerous. I used to take young people backpacking and camping all the time. And and we would go camping and the first thing we did when we, when we found our campsite, and those of you that are camping, you know. First thing you do is you build a fire, and we would create a fire pit. We'd get rocks and make a fire pit. And then people would all gather wood, and we'd all gather the wood, and we'd sit around and stack the wood up. And then I would get a match, or somebody would get a match, and we'd light the fire. And fire is awesome when you're camping. It gives you warmth. It gives you security. And it gives you safety. But inevitably, one of the kids, usually one of the middle school boys, I would be overdoing something, and I'd turn around, and they would have a stick in the fire, catching it on fire. And usually it wasn't a stick. They'd have some kind of log, you know, and they'd have it in the fire, and they'd catch it on fire. And I'd turn around, and they'd be walking around like it's a torch, waving it. And I'd say, wait a minute, stop. Bring that back. and say, oh, it's not hurting anybody. I'm very careful. I say, no, bring it back. You're going to light the forest on fire around us unintentionally, but you're going to do it. Because you see, fire is perfect and it's safe and it's warm where it's supposed to be. 
you really hear what I'm trying to say? What I'm trying to tell you is this very wonderful thing that brings warmth and comfort can do incredibly extraordinary, dangerous destruction if it's not where it's supposed to be. Please hear me. The issue with fire is not the fire itself. It's where it's supposed to be. It's location. The issue is not fire. Fire when used right. Fire when done the way it's supposed to is an incredible tool. Fire when it is taken out of where it's supposed to be is dangerous. And sex is the same way. Understand, God created sex. It's not an accident that it's good. That's the way God intended God got the firewood. God got the matches. God built the fire pit and he put it all there and he looked at the angels and he looked at those in heaven. He said, listen, you thought it was cool when you saw the sun and you saw the stars. Guess what this is? I am about to create something from nothing and it is going to be incredible. And he poured fuel on it and then he threw a match on it and poof, it was incredible. This is the way man and woman are supposed to be. And they probably sat back and said, how cool is that? But when you take that out of where it's supposed to be, all of a sudden it becomes dangerous, even if it's unintentional. Even if you're, you're trying to be careful, even if you're trying to have protection, it is dangerous when it moves outside of that. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. I don't know that you can get any more definitive than that. Run. Escape. Leave. Don't flirt with it. Don't get as close as you can. Don't justify it. Don't rationalize it. Don't entertain yourself with it. Run. Get away from it. Now, as I talk about that, I always have to remind myself to define what sexual immorality is. Because the first response for many people is, yeah, pastor, that's great. What I'm doing is not immoral. What I'm doing is not bad. What I'm doing is not dangerous. You see, the Greek word for sexual immorality here, much like it is throughout the entire New Testament, is the word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. And the word porneia has a simple definition. It means any sexual or sensual behavior outside the context of biblical marriage. And listen to me. Any sexual or sensual behavior outside the context of biblical marriage. Not just sex. Not just the sex act, any sexual or sensual behavior that is not within the confines of marriage is considered sexually immoral. Now that's huge, that's broad, that's much bigger than what we like to define it, right? Because we like to define it as the act of sex. God says, no, it's all of that other stuff. Now when I teach that, whenever I give a definition, I always sense in my spirit that there's two responses. First, uh uh-oh, because if we're honest, most of us in here have breached that boundary. But then there's always a second response, which people automatically in the back of their head, they they start thinking, well, what can I do and it still not be defined as sensual or sexual behavior? How far can I go without it really being that definition of sensual or sexual behavior? Well, let me ask you, same thing I used to tell college students. If you have to ask the question, it's too far. If you have to wonder how far is too far, you've gone too far. Because what God wants us to understand is that He has created something and He has made it perfect and good and wonderful as long as it stays where it's supposed to stay. Now stay with me. I know some of you 
checked out. I'm just a prude. I don't know what I'm saying. I want you to see why Paul says the only option we have is to run. Why Paul says the only thing that we can do, not, not to try to deal with it or manage it or rationalize it or excuse it. Paul says run. Why does Paul say run? Because in verse 18 he says this, all others sin. Now that should give us a warning. Because what Paul is saying is sexual sin is different than all other sin. All other sin is different than sexual sin. Not because God sees it different. Not because God treats it different. Because in God's eyes, sin is sin. Sexual sin is different because of the way it impacts and the way it affects you and I. Sexual sin is different because the consequences are far greater and far deeper than any other sin. Sexual sins is one of those things that is taught in the Bible as a generational sin, that it becomes a generational curse, that the children are, are watching the parents and the behavior of the parents and what's allowed by the parent, and they pass that on to their kids. It has lasting consequences. And listen to what he says. All other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Paul's saying the reason that it's in a category all on itself is that sexual sin takes a toll on a human being that no other sin takes. Sexual sin has a consequence like no other sin. Why is that? Remember what he said back in 15 and 16. That little warning about uniting with a prostitute. He said, should we take part of Christ, that's ourselves, with Christ living in us, and unite. You know what that word unite means? It means to glue. It means to fasten. It means to permanently attach. Should we take part of who we are in Christ and permanently attach, fasten, glue it to a prostitute? Now, I'm sure the Corinthians who were reading this were saying, oh, oh, time out, Paul. Nobody said anything about gluing or fastening or permanently attaching. It it was just a one-night stand, right? It was just one time. It was just one slip-up. It it was just a mistake. It was prom. We were dating a long time. It's no big deal. Paul said, you don't understand sex. You see, you think it's physical. You think it's an activity. You think it's something that you can just block out and go on with your life. Wrong. Wrong. You who unite with a prostitute is one with her body. And then he quotes Genesis. For the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. Now please hear me. It's easy for us to rationalize this out. It's easy for us to excuse this. But what Paul is saying is that when you are sexually active, not just just the act, sensual, sexual, outside the bonds of marriage, what happens is you begin to develop an intimate bond with that person that is never broken. Never broken. Because God created sex to be something more than physical. He created sex as a way for a man and woman to bond together, fasten together, to become intimate together. And when you do that outside of those confines of marriage, wherever you have sex, you are uniting, you are bonding You are connecting with that person, even if it's just one time. And when you walk away, they take a part of you and you take a part of them. Emotionally, spiritually, your soul. 
And what Paul is trying to warn us is, is, you know, it stays with us, whether we want to admit it or not, because there's something permanent about it, because that's the way God created it. Have you ever wondered why you can laugh at your mistakes from your youth and from your teens, sins that you did? I mean, listen, I, I did all kinds of stuff. I, I was in jail. I, did, I got stupidity. And me and my buddies get together and we all laugh about it because we moved on. But you know what we don't laugh about? We don't laugh about our sexual mistakes. We don't all get together and say, oh, don't you remember when you did this and we were doing this? Or we? You know why you don't laugh about it? Because you can't move on from it. Because somewhere in your spirit, somewhere in your soul, the Bible says that still resonates. Because while you thought it was just an act, you thought it was just an activity, you thought it was just like eating, you thought you could just walk away, Paul says it stays with you and it influences everything that you do and every relationship you have. If you're honest, you would admit that's happened to me. So why does it happen that way? Because sex is not just physical, it's a soul thing. Sex is a heart thing. Sex is God's way of helping to bind a marriage, to physically illustrate how a marriage can be two coming together as one, creating a bond. That's what He made sex for. Is it fun? Yes. Is it a wonderful experience? Yes. But the reason God made sex beyond procreation, people say, well, God just made sex to have kids. No. That's a bonus. All the other stuff is a bonus. The reason God created sex was because it was an incredible way for two people that are two separate people with two separate lives to come together and intimately share something that they've shared with no one else. And there is an intimacy and a bond that's there that you can't get anywhere else. And when you take sex out of the context that God designed for it, you foul up your ability to experience intimacy. Now please hear me. This is why it's so serious. This is why it's in in a category all its own. Paul's saying that there is a oneness that takes place whenever you have sex that you can never completely unwind once it's happened. Once it's happened, you take a piece of you and you give it to somebody else and it will always, always impact your ability to express and to experience intimacy. You say, well, Pastor, me and my wife had sex before marriage and it hadn't affected us, hasn't it? Hasn't it affected your ability to, to be intimate, to communicate, to, to bond, to share intimacy? Now, I'm not saying you can't over overcome it. I'm not saying you can't get past it, but let me just tell you this. Marriage is one of the hardest things you'll ever do in your life. It's hard. And when you add all of those things, when you've lost the ability to experience intimacy, and you're trying to build a relationship, it is almost impossible. And so many people, it takes work. Why? Because you're bringing somebody else into a place that was only for your spouse. And it takes work, and it's tough, and it takes being honest, and it takes being open. And, and listen, some of you are saying, I, I didn't even know that's what it was called, but that's, that's, I didn't even know that was the reason, but I can look at my relationship and see a problem. I've never even communicated, but that's it. 
Because there are barriers there. There are ghosts in your bedroom. People who they have spent time with, who they slept with. You bring all of that stuff into this relationship, which is already so hard, and it makes it almost impossible. So what happens is couples just walk away and they blame it on something else or they find an easy excuse. And instead of dealing with the intimacy issues they have, they just take it to the next relationship. Let's get remarried. And they throw all of those intimacy issues back in there. And sometimes what happens is because we tell ourselves, well, I've already been married once and I've already had sex once. And now that I'm divorced, it's okay for me to keep having sex. And so not only do they bring the issues from before their first marriage, they bring all the issues from the in-between to their second marriage. You know, second marriages fail on a much higher rate than first marriages. Because we don't deal with the issues that we have. We don't deal with the issues that didn't make the first marriage work. And most of that can go back to intimacy. Now, now please hear me. I'm almost done. Because God loves you and He created you. He knows your heart. He created sex. He knows the dangers of what happens with sex outside of marriage. And because of that, He has no other alternative than but tell you, Run. Flee. You see what happens to Christians. And listen, we think, I can handle it. I can watch this. I can listen to this. I can be around these kind of people and it won't influence me. Have you forgotten the story of the greatest hero in the Old Testament? The person who was a man after God's own heart? If there was ever somebody who was super spiritual, who we could think could handle it, all it took was him going out on his balcony one night and looking over at a woman who was bathing on another roof, and instead of running, he looked again. And then he looked a third time. And then he went back up the next night, and he went back up the next night. And then he said... We need to do something about this. And he ended up committing adultery and committing murder to cover up his adultery. A man after God's own heart. If he's not strong enough to handle it, you're not strong enough to handle it. When you're tempted, when you're struggling, when you're facing decisions that deal with sexual behavior, you need to run. Get away from it. That's why Paul says it's such a big deal. Run, not because you're going to get pregnant, not because you might get a disease. Run because it's going to put a dent in your soul and it's going to mess with your ability to experience and to give intimacy. That's why Paul says it's a sin against your own body. Because who do you hurt? You hurt you. Now I know, listen, I know there's some of you here This is going to go in one ear and out the other because that was me. I remember our pastor, you know what this, this word is, this sexual immorality is in the King James? Let me have King James, fornication. And I can remember being a teenager and hearing a pastor rant and rave about fornication. Fornication, fornication. But nobody ever explained to me the consequences like this. That it was going to affect my marriage. I've been married 30 years but the promiscuity that I had before my marriage. It still rises up. It still is an issue. Nobody explained that to me. It was just flee fornication. And some of you are going to walk out of here and you're going to say, but what I'm doing is not a big deal. What I did is not a big deal. What I'm going through is not a big deal. And you're just going to ignore it. I know, because I've done that. But I'm going to tell you, there's going to be a time sooner or later where you're going to wake up and you're going to recognize something's wrong in my marriage. 
You're going to recognize something's wrong with me. Something's wrong. I'm missing something. I'm empty. I'm not happy. You're going to find out the empty promises of it's just sex don't always fulfill themselves. And my prayer is that God would burn this truth in your heart and that when you find yourself at that place that you say, God, you're right. Because God tells us you'll either trust Him and obey Him or you'll disobey Him and then you'll learn to trust Him. But He'll always get your attention. For most of us in this room, we can say this is the truth because it hit home because we've experienced it or we are experiencing it. Maybe you struggled and your premarital sex before your marriage has robbed you of intimacy. Maybe there's a loss of you being able to give intimacy or you being able to share intimacy and you've never been able to put a finger on why that is. Maybe some of you, as I said earlier, have partners in your marriage that have never gone away. Maybe what started out as just a flirting and being funny or just lending a kind ear to a co-worker or neighbor and it's grown deeper and now it controls you more and you control it. Maybe you're dating. Maybe you're in the dating scene. The dating scene today is, you know, sex is just expected. Maybe that's where you are. You thought, listen, I've got to have sex or I'm going to be all alone. If I don't have sex, then no one's going to want me and no one's going to be around me. And so you convince yourself that you had to do that. Maybe you're in a relationship and it started as just one time. But now it's more than one time. Now it defines your relationship. Maybe it just started with looking at pictures on the internet or a magazine when you were a kid. And you thought, I, I can control this, but now you can't. Now you find yourself all alone at home and the first place you want to go is to that website. Paul would say, run. Paul would say, flee. What does that look like? Well, the first thing it looks like is repentance. And I know that's a big word, and we think of it as being a bad word or a hard word, but in this instance, it's a good word. Because repentance simply means to stop what you're doing and to turn around from where you're going. Repentance in this instant means admitting what God says about sexual behavior is true. See, for some of you, the first start is for you to simply admit it. Not because God needs to hear it. Please hear me. If you sinned and you've asked God for forgiveness, He has forgiven you and He has forgotten it. But many of you have never forgiven yourself. And repentance is a way for you to admit, this has been a mess. God, I was wrong. God, I can't control it. God, I can't help it. God, I see what it's done to my spouse and my kids, and I see what it's done to me, and God, I'm sorry. Because you see, the beauty of repentance is because it's in that place where you admit it. It's in that place that you recognize what God said all along is right. Maybe it was 30 years ago. Maybe it was last week. But what God says is right, and I'm sorry, God, and I don't want to ever do that again. It's in that place that God's grace begins to move. And God's grace moves in sexual sin in ways that are so hard to understand until you experience it. 
God's grace begins to rebuild what was torn down. God's grace begins to save you from some of those consequences that you were going to face. Save you. God begins to take that struggle with intimacy. When we admit that we blew it, God begins to rebuild intimacy in our heart. Maybe if you're a husband and wife and, and you had sex before you were married and, and you were engaged or you were going to be married and you didn't think it was any big deal, but now you can look at your marriage and you can see where there are intimacy issues. That means that maybe you and your spouse need to get together and go before God and say, we were wrong. Because you see, it's in that place of repentance. It's in that place of admitting, I blew it, that God can begin to work in your heart. That God can begin to take those things that were broken and fix back together. But you have to admit it. See, Paul says, you can't handle it. Run. And you think you can block it out. You think you can block it off. Run. Let's pray.